Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In the late summer of 2003, Radio Curious visited with Alexandra Fuller, who, as a child, lived in Rhodesia, Malawi, and Zambia in Southeast Africa between 1972 and 1990. After her father sided with the white government in the Rhodesian Civil War, he was often away from the family home. Fuller's resilient and self-sufficient mother immersed herself in their rural and rugged lifestyle and taught her children to have strong wills and opinions and to wholeheartedly embrace life despite and because of their difficult circumstances. Alexandra Fuller, author of Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, An African Childhood, was known as Bobo to her family and developed a love of reading and storytelling early in her life. When I spoke with Alexandra Fuller in September 2003, her home was in rural Wyoming. We visited by phone and began with why she chose the title to her book, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight. Americans ask me this. No one from England does, which goes to show that we're talking two different languages here, and I hadn't realized that when I chose this title. You know, I've asked Americans who speak English to translate for me, and they've come up with going to hell in a handbasket, and I've said, no, that feels too strong to me, because I know what that means. But, you know, it's connotations of being sort of drunk and debauched all night, dancing on bars and behaving generally in a way that the Puritans would frown upon. The joke of don't let's go to the dogs tonight. In other words, you know, go and get drunk and study tonight because mum's going to be there. Your mother, who's supposed to be this figure of what matrimonial, what's a good word for that matrimonial honor? And uh, of course, my mother was this riotous, glamorous, ill-behaved, fabulous, exotic creature. And if we ever decided to behave badly, we could be sure that if wherever we went, she'd be behaving much worse than we. So she set a pretty good standard for you. I would say that, yes, that, <laughs> so then how did you get the nickname of Bobo? Well, Bobo means baboon in Shona, sort of African slang. That's what I looked like, a small, little scruffy baboon as a child. But that was an affectionate characterization. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Your life had a lot of different forces. Your father was involved in preserving white rule in a country that was changing. Yeah, and my mother. What was that like? What, what were the elements going on in, in your home at that time? You know, you don't, as a kid, you don't know. And I think, finally, that's why I had to write this book from a child's perspective, because it was the only way I could be absolutely honest about something that, had I tried to explain it from an adult's point of view, I don't even know if I have the words. To even now? Even now, to explain or describe apartheid, which is essentially what it was. The ridiculousness of existing 250 white people in a country of 11 million. And what I can only think of as a sort of translucent eggshell, visually as a translucent eggshell, from a hearing point of view and white noise. In other words, you, you can't even hear 
the language of the people around you, you're ignoring that, and you're bombing around on this fragile eggshell, hoping that the shell's not going to crack open and that you're going to be splotched all over the road or all over the countryside as some sort of casualty of your whiteness. What I think I had going on as a child was this ridiculous sense of my superiority, but because I was a child, I longed for the organic, natural connection that human beings have. I didn't have all the hang-ups of grown-ups. I wanted, for instance, my nanny to touch me and hold me and sing to me and rock me in her lap. And I wanted the children that I played with to love and admire me without really understanding why and without understanding why, but knowing in some sort of gut level, I didn't understand it, but I knew it, that if my mother saw me sitting on my nanny's lap with my hand on her shirt and my nanny rocking me, I'd be smacked. I knew it, but I didn't understand it. Were you ever smacked? Oh, yeah. For? You know, all sorts of things. I was a wretched child. I'm sure I deserved it all. (laughs) But how about for crossing racial lines? Maybe not smacked, but certainly shamed into my whiteness. You know, that you'd be letting the side down if you behaved in in a way that Africans supposed to behave. My sense of race now is, I have white skin. This is over radio, so no one can see that. If you saw me, you would say that I was white. I even have blondish hair. Really, I think, having talked about this issue so much since the book came out, and being, I think, somewhat unconscious of what a raw thing I was throwing out in the world, because I think the world in general is extremely dishonest about the racism that they harbor in the guts of their bellies, or the tribalism, or the religious animosity or the their bias against, for instance, homosexuals. So this book has made a lot of people feel very uncomfortable because I just put it out there. Look, this is the way people behaved. My understanding now of it is closer to my understanding as a child, which is that I am only a pale shade of black and that some other people are a darker shade of white. If we are really honest with ourselves, none of us really know where we came from, how can we call ourselves a color? I think we can cleave culturally, but I think that it is disingenuous to cleave racially. That is my understanding now. After really two years of thinking about this so hard, I've almost blown a gasket in my brain. Did you ever come to terms with this discussion with your parents? Oh, with my parents? Um, yes, actually. You know, that they are above all African, and which has made them very pragmatic. And if we're honest, we all live in societies that are, if not tribalistic, I don't know what you call it. I mean, I'm living in the United States of America, and we have a sort of celebrity fetish in, in this culture, where those people are granted some kind of separate godlike status, and they can behave as badly as they want, as far as I can see, and also sort of corporate power culture. We are so busy throwing labels at things that we forget that we're all part, I think, of the same disease of needing to label what we are, who we are, what makes us better than the person on the rung below us, and what, and labeling the people who we perceive as being higher as us so that we can attain it, instead of just grabbing the honesty of what's within us, whatever that is, and trying as hard as we can to throw that onto the truth of what we see on our outside. And my parents have managed to do that. Are your parents still in Africa? Yes, they're in Zambia. What is life like for them now? Oh, nothing's changed. They've gone and found themselves the most desolate, godforsaken patch of earth in Africa, and they just think it's paradise because 
no one else could ever want to live there. And they're there with their 14 dogs sort of barging around in deadly heat. And the shower is a sort of grass enclosure with a bucket above it, which you've got to fill with water. And the last time I was home, about a month ago, there was a massive leg of on in the pantry, which mum thought was quite sweet. She quite liked the leg of on, you know, these massive monitor lizards. It was about four or five foot long. And mum thought it was quite sweet until it broke a quarter of a bottle of brandy. And then that was it. She got the knob carry out after it. They have periodic electricity and it's hotter than all get out there. And they have elephant and the bananas and they've got crocodiles in their fish ponds. And they just sort of treat every new crisis as if it's just part of the sort of ordinary. But two weeks ago, my dad was also beaten up at 11 o'clock in the morning on the road to a nearby lodge and held up with an AK-47 up his nose and nose broken and beaten quite severely in the face and arms. And, you know, he was his usual stoic, taciturn self about the whole incident. How old are your parents? Daddy is 64 and mum's 59. Are they from Africa? Were they born there? Mum's third generation Kenyan. And Dad's been there 40 years now. And this is their home? Dad moved there in 63, 64. Well, tell us what your life was like as a young girl. What were your daily routines like? The great thing that I realized when I was writing this book, the reason why I have such vivid, vivid memories of it, was that there wasn't a routine. It was this fabulous chaos, really almost a poetic chaos. I mean, of course, you do the things that ordinary, everyday people need to do to live and survive. You eat, you sleep, and and you try and get enough to drink. And it really wasn't until I left the culture, when I was about 18 years old, I I came over to the Western world, to Scotland, that I realized what an incredibly rich and chaotic life I had. And I think in my writing, it shows through this just tumbling and almost cocktail use of the senses which I've been asked about. And the only way that I can describe it is that I was so overloaded, I think, by not just sights, you know, that lovely raw light of a startling October day in southern in southern parts, southern and central Africa, and also that mellowing sort of yellow syrupy light that's filtered through wood smoke that happens in the evening. And everything sort of larger than life and the expanses are huge and the sky so big that you can't take it in in one glance. And then the sounds, you know, there's never silence. There's just constant pulsing of insects and trilling of birds and tree frogs and cattle screaming for their children and goats bleating and dogs barking. And, and, uh, and the, the air almost seems to sort of have its own noise and taste was just such a rich, rich childhood. In, in so many ways. And also since very often, because we lived growing up during a war, that every day might be your last. And it wasn't just me that understood that. I was understanding that filtered down from my parents who sort of lived that urgent life of carpe diem because it all might be over tomorrow. I want to ask about your experience with Western culture and when you began to see the separation between Western culture and African culture. But first, I want to mention that we're talking with Alexandra Fuller about her new book that's now in paperback called Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight. It's a book about her African childhood. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Bobo... Is there a section of your book 
Don't Let's Go to the Dogs tonight that you could read for us? Absolutely. Uh, this, this refers to me uh, trying to, to hitch a ride with a, a, someone who had a dugout canoe on Lake Malawi. My sister and I were sunbathing on this rock on the north end of, of a bay in a lake of, of Lake Malawi. Um, so I scud down the rock, gripping on a narrow ledge, toes stretching toward the canoe. Hands fast, says the paddler, holding the canoe steady against the rock. How can I put my hands fast? Ah, but you must. It'll be all right. You just keep the thing still. I make a clumsy lurch for the canoe. There is a brief vision of the paddler's dismayed face, and then we are all over, upside down, the water around me, suddenly lively with paddles, dead fish, grasping nets, despondent, soggy cigarettes. Vanessa peers over the edge of her perch. You're going to have to pay him for everything you've sunk. I will, I will. I clung to the up turned canoe. Sorry, I pant to the fisherman, but he is too busy recovering his goods to respond. I clear myself from the debris, from the leg-heavy fishing nets, which threaten to pull me down and thrash back to the beach, where I lie on my belly, staring at the glassy sand and coughing. The fisherman is still hanging onto his upturned canoe, saving cigarettes, which he is placing in a row on the canoe's sky-facing bottom. He kicks the canoe to shore. He has lost his day's catch. He does not look at me as he lays out his life on the beach. He has lost not only his catch, but also his knife, a basket, a plastic bag in which he had an old wine bottle filled with cooking oil, and a tin bowl containing a fistful of dry cornmeal for Enshima. I watch the muscles hop on his angry back and dig my toes into the sand. I'm sorry. He does not answer. I'll pay you. How many kwacha? But even those usually magic words fail to elicit a response. He turns his canoe upright and pushes out into the lake, balancing briefly as lightly as a cat on the gunwale before lowering himself into the canoe, bent like a dancer, from where he digs into the water with his paddle and slides out into the glare of the bright afternoon sun. I pick my way back up to the top of the rock where Vanessa's pink shoulders are beginning to hum a more urgent shade of red. You're burning, I tell her. That's so typical, she says. Put your shirt on. You're so annoying. I sit contrite next to Vanessa. He wouldn't let me pay him. No wonder no one will snog you. I like to say, right? Vanessa scratches under her chin, her jaw thrust out. She is looking far out into the water as if reading it for further insight into my shortcomings. Everything you do is a disaster. Cigarette is bitter on my tongue, tears sting behind my eyelids and make a hard, painful lump in the back of my throat. You're 14 years old and you haven't even been kissed. I shrug. Who says I want to be? She pushes out her lips at me. Can't you be just a little less... Can't you... I mean, can't you just be normal? I am normal, Vanessa closes her eyes. We've been taking it in turns, spraying a bottle of sun into our hair. The street Vanessa silver blonde and has turned my hair orange in unsightly blocks. She runs her fingers through her hair and turns her face to the sun. I've had my hair cut in an unflattering pudding bowl by an African hairdresser in Blantyre. My fringe is very short and crooked. I look like a grasshopper wearing a wig. I hang my head on my knees and sigh. Tears roll down my cheeks and splash onto my legs. Jeffrey might snog you, says Vanessa at last. He looks like a small gray weasel. Thanks. 
better than nothing. Which is how I come to be snogged at the next New Year's party by the rodent-faced Jeffrey, whose tongue takes me by such surprise that my teeth clamp down on it in a startled reflex. Did you ever see Jeffrey again? No. <laughs> no. Poor boy. Yeah. <laughs> but he knows who he is. He's out there somewhere. <laughs> and that's his name. It really is his name. I didn't change a single thing in this book. Not a name, not anything. It seemed to me that if I was going to be so brutally honest, I might as well, you know, uh, just be brutally honest without. And even something as as little as changing a name, to me, then it, in, in my head, you know, when I was writing this, it changed the picture of who I was thinking about. And it started to feel like a lie. I wanted this to be absolutely the most honest thing that I could pour out of myself because we've had so many versions of lies. Well, we've had so many versions of Africa that people cleave to that are no longer true. For instance, Elspeth Huxley's, you know, The Flame Trees of Dika and Isaac Dennison's works, which, you know, might have felt true and honest to them. But for us growing up, it just seemed like another world. You know, we grew up in poverty. We were hungry a lot. We had worms. We were being shot at. It was hot. We didn't have lovely picnics on the lawn. We barely had enough water to drink, little and squirt all over grass. It felt really, really important to me that I'd be absolutely as honest as I can be. When you were writing this book, did you have a person or an audience in mind? Huh. To... That's funny you should ask that. I, um, what had happened was I'd written eight or nine, you know, uh, spectacularly unsuccessful novels before I'd written this because I had found it so so uncomfortable any time I'd sort of steer towards the truth, in other words, nonfiction, I'd kind of scrambled back in the horror of what I was going to have to write to make it all coherent and, and honest-sounding and true. You know, I would have to write about the racism and I'd have to write about apartheid. I'd have to write about the alcohol. I'd have to write about... Uh, the discomfort, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to write about the things that we kept pretending weren't going on. And, um, my, uh, my, and I kept getting rejected and rejected and rejected. And my husband had just gone on, uh, a climbing expedition to Mexico. He was climbing active volcanoes and he had left an envelope on his desk and uh, which said only to be opened in the event of my death. So, of course, I opened it immediately and read it. <laughs> and it said, you know, blah, 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 boring stuff about the mortgage and what I needed to do about payments and car payments and everything else. And at the bottom it said, the most terrifying thing about you, but probably the most wonderful thing about you is your honesty. Use it. And it was like a voice from the other side, you know. So I sat down and started writing this. And I, I was alone at home with my two children, who were very little then. And the only time that I had to write was when they were sleeping. So I would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. It was dead winter. And write this into that sort of sensory deprivation. of a, we, were, we were living in Wyoming, Rocky Mountains. That sort of dead, deadening Wyoming winter. Um, and I think I wrote all my longing uh, for Africa into this. And And... That sense of wanting to tell the person who's closest to me, my husband, what it was like growing up the way I did. Because no matter how much you try and explain this or, or, or you know, sit down and talk about it, it either comes across as sounding sort of 
self-pitying or too ridiculous to be true. Um, and however hilarious, I, I used to think some parts were, he, was, he would be slightly aghast by the fact that, um, you know, almost all our lives were sort of soaked with a decent quantity of alcohol, which of course made it hilarious, I thought, in the telling, but he was suitably appalled as a sort of good, upstanding American citizen. When you live in Wyoming, where you mm-hmm. are now, where you mm-hmm. make your home, do you feel um, like a foreigner, like you're away from your home? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how is that? What does that feel like? Um, uh, you know, like it would be for you if, you if we picked you up and planted you in the middle of Africa and said, there, get on with it. You know, you would find bits of it that you just loved and adored. And you'd find bits of it that you would never, ever understand. And you would always have an accent so that people asked you where you were from. And you, there would always be a part of you that didn't, that, you know, I, I, listen, the, my, my cells, my hair, my five foot five of growth, my toenails, my teeth, my sight, my vision, my taste, everything I got from African earth, you know, from eating food growing on African soil. I am an African and so I do look a little startling out here. I'm white, but in every other way, I'm an African. And, it, it, you know, it doesn't take long for people to see my otherness and certainly hear it. And, so um, how do you fit in uh, to Wyoming culture, to American culture? Um, huh. Well, what is American culture? Well, maybe you can see it because you're African. I, well, you know, I think American culture defines itself by its otherness. Um, in other words, it pronounces what it isn't. You know, you can never just go to a pub. It's always an Irish pub or uh, uh, Italian bistros or, you know, I mean, aside from sort of hamburger stands, there's very little that sort of defines itself as American, which is maybe what necessarily defines America is the this, this sort of young culture, which is correspondingly restless and a little bit messy and a little bit of a mix of all sorts of things and and very self-conscious and, um, you know, a, a very very needing to fit in, funnily enough, in a way that the English really don't care anymore. They're sort of almost sinking under their own culture over in England. Whereas here, I think they're still sort of fairly, or Americans are still sort of fairly adolescent about their culture. And I think that's what makes it such a wonderful, fresh thing and why people are so attracted to it. I mean, there is nothing probably more easy on the eye than than a young, fresh, uh, you know, creature or being or idea that's that's sort of inventing itself. When you are um, helping your children mature, what sort of things from your childhood are you teaching them in their childhood in Wyoming? You know, for all my mother uh, was not a touchy-feely person. I mean, let's face it, they descended from the Brits who haven't had an official emotion since, what, the Spanish Armada, I don't think. So it was fairly sort of hands-off, you know, hands-off childhood. Self-raising, I think, is the best way to describe it. But what what gifts I got, this kind of optimism which they had, which, you know, I think they showed through their lives, which was, you know, we got catapulted from one place to the next, from one tragedy into the other, from one political situation into another. And yet, no matter how dire 
things felt or how dire things got, whether it was civil war or losing the farm when when the first government takeovers happened in Zimbabwe, or being robbed or being held up at gunpoint at police roadblocks or whatever it was, there was just this tremendous sense of sort of optimism, um, almost bravado, but not quite, because it's bravado implies that you have an audience, and there we were in the middle of nowhere being incredibly optimistic, you know, into the nothingness of a bright blue African sky. And so I think that is not having self-pity, being optimistic, being as fearless as you can be, being pragmatic, being a survivor, and the gift of just knowing that you're alive, you know? What a wonderful thing to wake up still breathing and have a whole fresh raw day in front of you to do what you will with and to be done what will be done upon you. I think I got that from my parents and I want to try and pass that on as well as I can, as well as this rich, rich heritage I have from my mother of reading. You know, people ask me, well, why did they stay in Rhodesia during the war, you know? With that ridiculous assumption that people have somewhere to go just because of the color of their skin, which of course isn't true. But my answer has now become, I actually suspect that it was because so many other white people left. They fled in the middle of the night, and they used to leave everything. They would leave their houses and their animals and, and everything. And, um, but they would leave their dogs and their libraries. And, and I think my mother particularly didn't leave because she wanted to inherit their libraries and their dogs. So we always had bookshelves bursting with books and far too many dogs. Alexandra Fuller. A bobo, as you have come to be called. I want to thank you so much for joining us on Radio oh, you're Curious. Welcome. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? There is a Zimbabwean writer called Alexander Kanangoni, uh, who fought as a Zanla guerrilla during the Liberation War in Rhodesia. And he's written about that experience in a very thinly veiled novel. It's really, I think, very autobiographical called Echoing Silences. It's available by Baobab Books in Zimbabwe. I think you can get it through Heinemann. It's a brave, brave book. And my most stunning, stunning line that I can think of in literature, which just sends chills up my spine currently. I mean, this book is a book that is going to be by my side till I die. The character Munashi says to his wife, there is no way that I can reconcile myself with the ghosts of war without beginning in Mozambique. Please, Chennai, if you love me, accompany me to Mozambique. My peace begins there. Alexandra Fuller, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. You're welcome. Alexandra Fuller is the author of Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, An African Childhood. The book she recommends is Echoing Silences by Alexander Kanagoni which may be available through Heinemann's books. This archive edition of Radio Curious was recorded in late summer 2003. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 
1-800-227-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.